0: It's my pleasure to be delivering God's word tonight. Um, So I'm going to pray, and then we'll uh, get right into it. Oh, wait, hold on. We have an announcement, don't we? No? Yes, because there is a child protection training seminar on Saturday coming up. Uh, If you are involved in any of our children's ministries, this is not a negotiable thing. You do want to come along. um, Bright and early at, oh, what, 9.30 to 11.30? That's fine. That's not early. Um, Come along to that. Um, It's very important that we we are good about how we, uh, what's the right word here, that we're we're crossing our I's and and dotting our T's as far as um, protocol goes on this kind of thing. You know, we're in a very sensitive culture about how we do this stuff and we want to be good at it. Um, And our kids deserve the best protection and the best sort of protocol keeping um, that is possible. So, I think that's the only announcement, come along, please be involved with our kids ministries as well. Good. Sermon? All right, sermon. All right. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into the message. Father God, thank you again for this opportunity for us to gather together to read your word uh, and to, to hear your spirit as you, you speak into our lives. So we ask that you open up this word to us and that you open up our hearts to this word. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Right, well, we're back in Romans. If you cast your minds back into antiquity, or remember we did uh, Romans one through eleven earlier in the year, um, well, earlier last earlier this year, haha. <laughs> no, not quite. Uh, last year we did uh, Romans one through eleven, and we decided to pick up and finish off the Roman series. Um, and now we're in Romans twelve. And so, if you recall, and uh, I hope you do, Romans one through eleven. Uh, And particularly 5 through 11 are very dense with Paul's theology. Very dense with how Paul explains, to put it simply, about what God has done through Jesus. How believers have been given life through faith. How we are now dead to sin but alive in Christ. Because we died with Christ and now we are alive with Christ. That the law has expired with Christ's death and new life. That there is a future glory and eternal life to come, that this is only by God's choice that this happens, that this new life is dispensed to Jews and Gentiles alike. Are you picking up the life theme so far in Paul's theology? This remains relevant for our passage today because chapter 12 is a big hinge in this book. It's where the stuff that came before connects to all the stuff that comes after and not just in the most boring sense. And there's a transition from Paul's theology to what we're supposed to do about that. It's the junction between Paul's joyful exclamation about what God has done through Jesus and now what our right response is supposed to be. And you can identify hinges like this when they come up in scripture, often because they have a big therefore in front of them. That's your biggest clue. When it says therefore, it's saying therefore because of what came prior, which is chapters 1 to 11, Paul's theology. And... Particularly in this case, we have the therefore I urge you. We can see we're going from Paul telling us what God's done to what we are supposed to do, how we are supposed to respond. So therefore always means in light of what came before. And whenever we encounter that therefore in the study of scripture, we look for what comes before to justify it. So now we're in the response part. Let's start stepping through this passage and break it on down. We can divide these eight verses that we're dealing with here into two lots. You've got verses one and two, and then three to eight as a, a sort of an attached but distinct unit. Verse one goes like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, that phrase, true and proper worship, is a critical one here, the ESV translates it spiritual worship. And uh, Tom Schreiner, who's one of the theological fatheads who writes books about this kind of thing, he translates it your rational service. And I like the clarity of that translation, the rational service, because it is not an appeal to emotion that we're receiving from Paul here. He's not asking us to get fired up and do it in response. Christians are, and will continue to be accused of being irrational believers. Uh, more and more, you'll hear that objection to Christianity, that we're just acting out of emotion or that we don't have a reason for the things that we believe. There's a good reason for that stereotype, even if it's wrong. It's because we believe that we are saved by grace through faith. And historically, some thinkers have portrayed that faith as a, as a leap of faith, as a sort of a irrational action, throwing ourselves into belief, with our eyes closed, just hoping that God will will catch us, like a trust fall for the soul. But the Bible doesn't talk about faith as a leap like that, as an effort made against all reason. It's the most rational thing you can possibly do. Because before the faith comes into it, you are already falling, you are already in peril. You don't start on solid ground then have to leap out into uncertainty. The Bible tells us that we, uh, we begin falling. And once you realize that, the most rational and sane thing to do is to cry out for a savior or someone to grab you. And likewise, it's very rational and reasonable reasonable once God has saved you to offer your bodies as a living, holy, pleasing sacrifice to God. That's what Paul's saying. Now, what do we mean by a living Sacrifice. After all, aren't most sacrifices living until you sacrifice them? That's the point, right? You get a lamb that would have otherwise grown up into a fat sheep that could have fed a family of ten, and then you sacrifice it and it feeds no one. Or maybe we think by a living sacrifice, we mean a sacrifice that goes on living. It is not, in fact, killed. In which case, what's so special about that? Folks live in service to their gods and ideals all over the world, and they always have. If that's all a living sacrifice is, then there's really nothing particularly special about this gesture. You be a living sacrifice to God, someone else will be a living sacrifice to Allah, someone will be a living sacrifice to Krishna, everyone's a living sacrifice to something or someone. Now that may be true at the most basic level, because we are talking about living your life in service to God. But that truth is captured in this verse with the words, offer your bodies. Not the part about the living sacrifice. Your body is what you use to do anything you would do in this world. You go places, you pick things up, you take actions. When you are offering your body, you are offering your form, your function, everything that you can do for God. But as for being a living sacrifice, we can see that Paul's had a very distinct meaning for life and living up to this point in the book. Romans 8.11 says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your model bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. As far as Paul is concerned, for the inspired instructions of this book, you only become living at the point at which the Holy Spirit is flowing through you. That's the point at which that your saved heart becomes alive when it was previously dead to sin. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice, to be saved, and then that life is given over to God. It's this life, the redeemed Christian life, as given by the Holy Spirit, which is the only thing that we have of any value to give back to God. The only thing that we have of any value to God is the new life that he begins in the saved sinner. And that's why it's only rational to take this thing, the only good thing we have, this living, holy, pleasing to God sacrifice, and use that in service of the king that saved us in the first place. It's this kind of circular act of kindness that we first see when, uh, when a mother sees her child old enough to celebrate Mother's Day, but not old enough to really execute that celebration on their own. You know, the one where the mum gets up on Mother's Day, boils the egg, makes the toast, cuts it up into soldiers, puts it on a plate, goes back to bed, and then the child carries the plate to bed, and, oh, breakfast in bed, how thoughtful. Because we are incapable of producing something of worth to God. But he's blessed us with a new, awakened spirit life. And it's that life that we offer to him as this living sacrifice. So that's verse 1. Now verse 2 is almost a restatement of verse 1 once you get that. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This transformation, this renewal of the mind is a, a passive command. It's be transformed, not transform yourself it's a passive change like tanning. It's a thing you do without doing anything. In short, it's the work of God to transform your mind. And that happens once you are alive in the Spirit. And once that's happened, you'll be able to test what is God's will, his good, perfect, pleasing will. It's that which makes you the living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. Make sense? God saves us, gives us the means to thank him for saving us in that same action. Now, it's all well and good to say that, that we live our lives life-filled for him. But what does that mean? What does that look like in practice? And verses 3 to 8 strive to tell us what that looks like. Verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So Paul gives a warning about being puffed up with this churchy pride. If anyone had a reason to have any kind of churchy pride, it was surely Paul. He planted half the churches in the known world at the time. God had given him incredible faith, incredible miraculous gifts and a great amount of wisdom and, uh, and amazing preaching, so much so that we're using it today. And right now from this passage, he's given Paul wisdom to teach people about not being proud and he begins by leading by example, for by the grace given me, I say, he accounts even this wisdom as something given to him by God. Now the next part gets a little challenging. Think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. We're supposed to to apply sober judgment, careful, sensible thought, in accordance with the faith that has been distributed to each one of us. What does this mean? Does it mean that everyone in the church has been given the essential sort of baseline faith of Christ and that we should be thinking only of that when we judge ourselves. It's tempting to take that understanding because it's nice, it's sort of spiritually egalitarian. We're all comrades equally gifted by faith, but if we're honest with what's written here, it really sounds like Paul is saying that some of us are more equally gifted than others. The metaphor we're given is the body and the different parts of the body being like a different allotment of gifts. These gifts we hear in, If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So as the body has many parts, great and small, so too the church has many gifted members, but all of them belong. Now this means two equally important things. The first is that there are some believers who have less faith than others. We ought to do this in accordance with the faith that God has apportioned to each of us if we are all parts of the same body, then someone is the pinky toe. Some members of the church have been given less faith and it is unfair to, pur- to burden them with the work accomplished by those of greater faith. It kind of sounds mean, but we can't ignore it. When a church is looking for a pastor, for example, they look for certain qualities, certain giftings, a strong personal belief, good communication skills, ideally plays base but what they don't do is find someone who's just come to Christ and has exhibited little gifting or little faith at all. That would be foolish. I'm emphasizing this because we're hitting an intersection right now of two church teachings. That If we don't address them together, they sound contradictory. And we need to make sure that we have them right so we don't get them tangled up and then they turn into a mess that we have to pick apart later. First, we have... The Gideon idea, if you remember the story of Gideon, God shrinks down the, the army that is representing him to just a handful of soldiers so it better displays his power when it conquers a superior enemy. It's the David and Goliath thing, the God hanging the greatest weights on the smallest wires. It's the all things are possible thing. It's the teaching that says if you are weak, then God's strength is most apparent when he is working through you. The second teaching is the one that we're at now where it says that any gifts you have, your strengths are given by God and for those to be used in service to him. This is the Solomon thing where he is the wisest man in the world because that is a gift from God. It's the Esther thing where God raised up a beautiful, brave woman for a time that required a beautiful, brave woman that was faithful to him. And, of course, we can see the conflict between these ideas now. Which is it? Do we play to our strengths or to our weaknesses and wait for God to shore them up? Clearly, God works in both ways. We've had both examples in Scripture. God could have made Solomon a moron, and then it would have been even more miraculous that Israel prospered under him. Or he could have given Gideon ten times the number of men that the enemy had, and they probably wouldn't have needed to fight at all this is the kind of question where our faith gets tested and it's important we work this out to a satisfying conclusion and I think Paul's words here to think about ourselves with sober judgment those are important in both cases for our strengths and our weaknesses pride is destructive and false humility is fake and insulting when the music team gets up here and they pray before they sing they're not praying "Oh Lord we are so terrible at music We thank you that you take our stupid hands and bad voices and make them good somehow. They've been given a gifting. They have obvious musical talents. And there's a reason we don't replace them with a half dozen randoms with blindfolds and tambourines. God has equipped them for this purpose. But sometimes God will show his providence in an unexpected way, sometimes in a miraculous way. And when God takes someone who had no confidence but teaches them to lead, Or someone who has no education and makes them a scholar, then it's so clear how God is working in that action that we have no choice but to praise him for it. But day to day in our typical actions, how we normally plan our activities, we look at ourselves in sober judgment and we look to serve the body of believers that we're in according to our strengths. So when these verses talk about having gifts, they're typically not looking for gifts that will spontaneously manifest when you go about doing them. You don't take someone who is bad at pastoral ministry and say, let's make them our pastor. You'd say, great, he's humble, and he has a whole lot to be humble about. We can tell God is increasing because there's barely anything left of him to decrease. Weakest possible candidate, strongest work of God. It doesn't quite work that way. So two things. First, that people receive these unequal giftings and each should examine themselves to search for their strengths and serve out of their strengths. But just as importantly, every member of the body belongs to the body. And just because a pinky toe is not essential for life does not mean it doesn't belong, or that the rest of the body doesn't want it or need it or benefit from it. There are no wasted parts in this picture. We are all, regardless of whether or not we have been gifted strongly or weakly, bound to one another in service and are required to serve one another however we can. No one is exempt. This is what this transformation is about. We go from being lost and dead individuals to a living servant corporate whole. The members of that one church body serving one another. And there is no shame in having a particular gift that is smaller than playing guitar or running a life group. Churches are built or burnt on the basis of people doing or failing to do the small things that God has appointed for them to do. Not everyone saved is given the faith required to parachute into Syria and start an underground church amidst the combat. But everyone has enough in them to hold a conversation with a neighbor about Jesus. Or to come along to conversational English classes and help people feel welcome just by listening and speaking, or to be a youth leader or even to run a D team, or to turn up once or twice a year to a working bee. If God has given you the gift of being able to pull weeds out of the ground and move a shovel, come on, why not? We've been transformed. Coming to follow Jesus is a whole life change, a change of perspective and life orientation as well. Everything else becomes secondary to our duty to serve God. And here Paul is telling us that the best thing we can do, our true and proper worship, our rational response to being saved is to serve our church fellowship with the gifts that we've received in accordance to the faith that we've been given. This can sound a little hollow sometimes because we 21st century Protestants, we tend to have a fairly low view of what a church is. Not that we think it's bad, we just undersell it. We tend to think of church as a sort of a club, a sort of a Christianity club. We have common ideas, we all like the Bible, we all call Jesus Lord, we're all interested in seeing these things spread out more. We meet, we have volunteer rosters to get things done, sometimes you go away for a little while, sometimes you move to a different branch of the club. But the way Paul opens up this chapter and constantly in his letters refers to his audience is by speaking to his brothers and sisters. And we hear that so many times we we sometimes tend to gloss over it. But Paul means it. The devotion he expected of the Roman church was for its members to have a comparable devotion to one another that siblings have for one another. This whole church thing only really thrives if we take this idea seriously. We are brothers and sisters bound by Jesus' blood to serve one another. Suppose you are talking to a friend and it comes up in conversation, that they've just decided that they're going to leave their family. You'd have more than a few questions. You see, they're they're your own flesh and blood. What happened? Did they try and kill you? Are you mad? No, it just wasn't working out with my family. My brother's into really old music, and eh, so I thought I'd just leave. I couldn't quite get into it. I had a fight with my sister. Now it's uncomfortable when we sit together at the same table, so I thought I'd leave the family. My friend's family is huge. There's like 10,000 of them. Maybe I'll go there. Maybe I'll join a smaller, more intimate family, somewhere quieter. It sounds insane when you put it that way. Paul is not saying... You're not literally brothers and sisters, so don't get too attached. In fact, he doubles down and uses the metaphor of being members of the same body. If you can find a connection more intimate than brothers and sisters, it's being the same person. And this is even more intimately connected than a family. And it depends completely on its essential parts doing their particular jobs. And it can't be healthy and whole unless even the little parts, even the pinky toes, are doing their bit. I don't want to belabor the point much more than that, but I can't really stress it, stresses it enough. According to the word of God, the people in this room are other members of this church family. How then should we feel about, for example, members who come to join our family? How should we feel about attending family meetings and being engaged in what the family does? How can we expect the world to take us seriously If we call each other brothers and sisters and treat each other like football club members, united by interests but at arm's distance, these are questions worth asking. Now, it's not all quite as dire as I have painted it here. I know it took me a long time to get involved in church service. It wasn't because I didn't care. I just didn't really know how to get about it. I didn't see the need that I could fill. And I didn't think I was useful enough for any of the big stuff, but I didn't know how to get involved in anything kind of more my size at the time. When an ad popped up in the bulletin for a working bee, I'd be too easy to say, I'm sure they have enough people without me, so I won't bother. I want to help in a non-trivial way. Because Kev Smith and his team keep the property looking great. But if this property was a total mess, if it was trash everywhere and pieces of abandoned cars lying around, I think we'd turn out in droves to clean the place because we'd see the need. So if that's you, if your issue is you don't quite see how to get involved, then I want to give you a special invitation. In the bulletin, there's a yellow slip of paper. We use it for prayer requests and other things. But if you want to serve your church family, but you're just not sure how to get started in that. Then you can take it out, you can write your name on there and a number to contact, uh, contact you or an email address. Just write the words, how do I help? Put it in one of the boxes near the doors, and then myself or one of the pastors or elders will get in contact with you and we'll figure out how you can help. Now, if that's not you, if you know you're gifting and you're not having trouble figuring out how to use it, but you're not involved yet, then you probably know what you're supposed to be doing and you just haven't done it. If that's you, what are you waiting for? This is your family we're talking about. Don't leave us hanging. The more of us that get involved, the better it gets. When you were saved by God, you became holy, pleasing to God, and spiritually alive. And the right, rational, good thing to do is to give that gift back to God by serving God's people. You know what to do? Go do it. Whatever you're gifting, no matter if God's given you a truckload of faith or a tablespoonful, there is a home for you here in this family as part of this corporate body. And serving God here amongst your brothers and sisters with the gift you've received from Christ according to his death and resurrection. That is our true and proper worship. That's the best thing we can do. Let's pray. Father God, you saved us. Your son's death on the cross paid for each of our sins, for each of us as individuals, but you also forged us together into a body of believers into a new family. Help us to serve our family in a way that pleases you. Help us to develop love and loyalty, to soothe our contentions, to amplify our joy, and to teach us how to better honor you with this life that we are given by serving one another according to Jesus' example. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.